Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. The Colonial Parkway stretches for 23 miles in Virginia, bringing together what's referred to as the historic triangle of Williamsburg, Yorktown, and Jamestown. Although for many traveling through the parkway, it's a scenic passageway through American history. For locals, several pockets became known as Lover's Lanes, where couples could rendezvous in secluded areas. Beginning in 1986, spots along the historic parkway took a dark turn. Six people were murdered and two more missing were believed to be killed as well. The homicides became known as the Colonial Parkway Murders and remain a series of unsolved mysteries with little answers for loved ones. The thing about the Colonial Parkway Murders is that it's four double homicides that were committed about a year apart. The bodies were found in some cases, not found in other cases. Sometimes they were left right where the crime occurred. Sometimes they were put in the water. Sometimes they were moved. I'm Stephanie Gamolka, Oxygen.com correspondent. Here are some of the details of the case explained. The first known case is Kathy Thomas and Becky Dowski. Kathy, 27, was a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. Becky, 21, was a student at the College of William and Mary. The couple's bodies were discovered Columbus Day weekend, 1986, at an overlook along the Colonial Parkway in Williamsburg, Virginia. They were strangled and their throats were slashed. Their deaths, still shrouded in mystery, have been theorized as the work of a serial killer or a targeted hate crime, but remain unsolved to date. The next pair to be found murdered was David Knobling, 20, and Robin Edwards, 14. After Knobling's car was discovered at Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge in September 1987, a search for them ended a few days later, with their bodies being discovered near the James River along the shore. They were both shot to death, execution style. In April 1988, Cassandra Haley, 18, and Keith Call, 20, disappeared. They were last seen at a friend's party in Newport News, Virginia, and both were college students. Keith's car was discovered at a turnout along the Colonial Parkway. However, their bodies were never discovered. Family members told Oxygen in the documentary series they did not think Cassandra and Keith went to the parkway or the water willingly. And the fourth case, Anna Maria Phelps, 18, and Daniel Lauer, 21. Phelps was dating Lauer's brother. They were last seen on September 4, 1989, Labor Day weekend. They were driving to meet Daniel's brother in Virginia Beach, according to the Oxygen series. The car was found at a rest stop on I-64, and their bodies were discovered in the woods nearby weeks later. It's often compared to the other cases because I-64 meets the Colonial Parkway, and the case is another double homicide. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analysts and the Intelligence Cell. Now, as I said last week, I'm not yet finished with Lolly and Julie's case. And this week, I'm honoured to be joined by Bill Thomas, brother of Kathy Thomas, and Kristin Dilley, who you'll hear introduce themselves in this episode. What I can tell you is that they're tremendous people who've become friends over the years. And as I said before, I really wanted to revisit Kathy Thomas and Becky Dowski's case again 
in light of all that I've learned about Lolly and Julie's murders from my detailed interview with Catherine Miles and from Catherine's book Trailed. Now, if you haven't read Trailed yet, I highly recommend you get your hands on a copy and read it. So you might think that you know something about Kathy Thomas and Becky Dowski's case, and also what's commonly been referred to as the Colonial Parkway murders. Now, I'm not a fan of that term, the Colonial Parkway murders, and you'll hear us discuss in this episode why. But I just want to give you a quick overview of the cases that are often referred to as the Colonial Parkway murders. From 1986 to 1989, six young people were murdered and two disappeared, and the FBI believed it was most likely a serial killer. Now, the cases included Kathy Thomas and Becky Dowski, who were murdered on the 9th, 10th of October, 1986. David Lee Nobling and Robin Edwards, who were found dead on the 23rd of September, 1987. Richard Keith Call and Cassandra Lee Haley, who disappeared on the 10th of April, 1988, and who were never found. And Daniel Lauer and Anna Marie Phelps, who disappeared on the 5th of September, 1989, and whose bodies were later found under a blanket near a rest stop. Now, in our discussion, we start to dive into whether these cases are in fact linked and whether there are links to Lolly Winans and Julie Williams's murders. And what I will say to you is pay close attention to the similarities in victimology and possible targeting between Kathy and Becky and Lolly and Julie's cases and the fact that the murders happened 10 years apart, less than 200 miles away in isolated locations and on long holiday weekends. Coincidence? Well, let's join the conversation as we dive into the difficult and complex details of each case. But before we do, I just want to give you a trigger warning. Listener discretion is advised due to the nature of our graphic discussion about the crime scene behaviour. Okay, let's get into this important interview with Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilley. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And this week, I'm joined by two very special guests. I'm really delighted to have Kristen and Bill on Crime Analyst, but I'm going to leave it to both of you to introduce yourself. So let me start with Bill first. Oh, no pressure here then. Um, My name is Bill Thomas. I am a podcaster together with Kristen Dilley. We have a podcast called Mind Over Murder, Most people know me from being a victim's advocate. My sister, Kathy Thomas, and her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, are the first two victims in the so-called Colonial Parkway murders. Thank you, Bill. And I'm Kristen Dilley. I am Bill Thomas's partner in crime. I co-host the Mind Over Murder podcast, and I have been working with Bill on the Colonial Parkway murders since 2016, I believe it is, as a victim's advocate and as the co-mod for all of our social media pages with regard to the case. Excellent. Thank you both very much. And thank you for coming to talk to me on Crime Analyst. And You know, it's interesting. You mentioned, Kristen, 2016. That's actually when I first met Bill and talked with Bill about the case. Um, And unfortunately, it's a very personal case for you, Bill. And it's been a very long period of time, actually. Looking back at dates, I realized it was the 36th year anniversary of Kathy and Rebecca Dowski's case being unsolved. And I mean, almost four decades. That's just incredible. Yeah, it it's always a struggle. You know, the the fall, October 
9th, 10th is the anniversary date. And Kristen knows this from us working together. It's always a very, very difficult time for me and my family. And you just sort of get through it. And I resist something, Kristen and I laugh about this, as we get further and further into the year, I always resist people rounding up. In other words, when it's September and people say, well, it's 36 years, I'll say, well, it's not 36 years until October 10th. But then I can't push off the inevitable when that date clicks. I just wake up that morning thinking now it's 36 years and now we're moving towards 37 years with still no answers. It's a very, very difficult and frustrating process to watch the years tick by like this. I can't even say that I can imagine it because I can't. You know, it's not something that I've personally experienced. I do work with lots of families, as, as you both well know. But seeing the clock ticking by and why I said almost four decades is because someone knows something somewhere and there's evidence that we know about. And it's really my frustration, as I know that you share absolutely because it's your sister's case with a lack of progress and that frustration, I mean, and I got to applaud you because you're incredible as an, as an advocate. And I've always said this to you, actually. I think I said it from the day that we met, what an incredible advocate you are, not just for Kathy and Becky, but all the families, actually. And I remember you sort of looking at me again, not really sure what that meant, but you were doing it without really knowing that that's what you were doing. And you've continued to do it. And now you've got the podcast, you found different ways to be able to connect with people to try and solve the case. And it's phenomenal. So I firstly just want to pay real kudos to you and credit because when people talk about crime, they often don't think about the impact on families. And as you know, this isn't just entertainment. It's not just a story to be told. And that's what Crime Analyst is all about. And all of my work is about centering victims. And I know both you and Kristen feel very strongly about that too. Well, thank you. And Kristen, did you want to add anything? I've been working with Bill since 2016. And every year I've I've watched him have to struggle with anniversaries. And interestingly enough, every year it has actually become a little bit harder for me to deal with the anniversaries too, because every year that I'm more invested in this case and the more I get to know about the victims and their families and the siblings and parents that are trying so hard to find answers when clearly none are, are forthcoming the more frustrating and hard that it gets. And Bill and I were discussing on our own podcast that this year was, it, it was rough for both of us. It somehow feels more personal every year that goes by with no answers. It's been awful for their families. I, I, I have no potential frame of reference to understand the kind of, of grief that Bill and all the rest of these families have gone through. But every year that I've been involved with a case that we have had no answers the worse and more personal it feels for me too. And I've told Bill before, I don't know if I have a right to that kind of feeling because I, I didn't know any of these victims, but I, I do know their families now. And every year that goes by, it just gets a little more frustrating and a little more heartrending on my end. But the vast majority of the people that listen to our podcast and have listened or watched us in interviews or read newspaper articles, they don't have a connection either. And yet we often hear from them how much 
this matters to them. And we talk about, of course, the Colonial Parkway murders. We talk about lots of other cases as well. And Kristen asked me something very interesting a week or so ago, a couple of weeks ago now, when the Delphi case broke and we had the arrest. She asked me first off the air, and then she said, do you mind if we discuss this on the air? And I said, no, go right ahead. And she asked me, do you feel a twinge of unhappiness or you didn't say jealousy, Kristen, but, you know, does it does it hurt to see an advancement in another case? And actually, it's completely the opposite for me. I feel so excited and and just thrilled that we're seeing a significant development. Now, we happen to know some of the people involved in that case, the family members, and we're just thrilled. And so if anything, it gives me more hope, not less. And I am so excited whenever I see a cold case moving forward like that, whether it's been five years or 36 years, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, for me, what it tells everybody, and as a victim advocate myself, is just how important it is to have advocacy and to have advocates and to keep the pressure on externally. You know, when I was at New Scotland Yard, it was really important, and I say to people, external, to keep that pressure on. Because organisations like New Scotland Yard move to the next big thing, the next big thing, the next disaster, the next operation. And that kind of corporate memory can disappear as people move on. And, you know, those who are heavily invested in the case get moved on or they retire. So you have to keep really banging the drum. And so, yes, I agree with you, Bill. Every, every cold case that's resolved, it's really important for families to hear about those cases. It can happen, but by God, it does come down to, you know, having people within organizations who are just dogged and tenacious and determined and to not give up. And you need those people to be working inside organizations. And I was one of those people. I'm now on the outside. But it's really important to keep using the media and keep spotlighting cases and to have your listenership asking questions. When I talked to Catherine Miles, for example, brilliant investigative journalist who you both know, Catherine wrote her book Trailed and I was asked, would I speak to her about it after, I think it was our interview actually, Bill, on Real Crime Profile. And I listened back to that interview not so long ago and and I talked about Lolly and Julie and I talked about Kathy and Becky and how I believed that there were similarities at the time. And then Catherine reached out to me out of the blue to say, would I talk to her for her book? And of course I said, yes, you know, I wasn't really sure what she was going to ask me. But the more that I've been diving into the cases that are in Virginia specifically, the more alarmed I am about how many unsolved cases there are. And how do we know about cases? The only way we know uh, particularly about historical cases, is either through law enforcement putting things in the media or families putting things in the media or investigative journalists who are determined to understand what went on. And sometimes it's inadvertently that they stumble across things, which I know is sort of Catherine's story. But I think it's really alarming what was going on in Virginia, more so because I, I don't think I told you, Bill and Kristen, that I went to work in the FBI and to work in Quantico at the behavioral analysis units. And we talked about hundreds and hundreds of cases. And not once did your sister's case come up or the Route 29 stalker um, or the number of murders that had happened. 
And the number of near misses, what I call near misses, of women reporting things where they're being followed or something sinister happens and then that's just blown off. And it made me really curious about looking back at your sister's case, Kathy's case, and starting to understand it with a, a new lens seven years on, but to revisit the case. And that's why I really wanted to talk to you both to get more information, maybe new information. Maybe it, you've got a different perspective since we last spoke. And we've spoken lots of times in between the Real Crime Profile episodes but I know that you've been doing a lot on Facebook and you've obviously been talking to the families, to the FBI and so on. So I, I really wanted to have this conversation. I wanted my listeners to hear it too. So that's a lot of information. Like I said, just to recap, what I was really alarmed about is the number of unsolved cases in Virginia specifically, particularly when I always lead with double homicide is very rare. Rapes and murders of women is rare. You know, they're rare type offences, but unfortunately, they're not as rare as I would like them to believe. And when you have John Douglas and other profilers, you know, saying things like serial killers are very rare. Well, what if we just don't know how many are operating in an area? What if we're just completely linkage blind and we don't understand cases and the officers involved didn't understand them well enough, didn't link them, didn't talk to each other or communicate? What if that's what's really going on? What are your thoughts on that? I've told you a lot, a lot of information, but I wanted to be clear about why I wanted to go back into to the case. Well, just to react to one thing, I'm actually kind of appalled that the Colonial Parkway murders wouldn't even come up because, first of all, that's been an FBI case since day one. They are the lead agency. They're not in a secondary role. They're not advisors. Because Kathy and Becky were killed in a national park, that was an FBI case from day one. The same as the Julie Williams Lolly Winans murder in 1996 up at the Shenandoah National Park and the disappearance of Keith Call and Cassandra Haley, who are considered part of the Colonial Parkway murders back in the Williamsburg area. I'm going to say this. I'm appalled, but I, somehow I'm not surprised because the lack of urgency that has shown up over and over again in the Colonial Parkway murders investigation, half of the cases are FBI cases, the other two double homicides are handled by the Virginia State Police. And boy, as the years have gone by, the, the level of urgency and focus, and as I like to say, time, attention, and resources from law enforcement just feels like it continues to ratchet downward. So it's amazing that the BAU would be having discussions about serial killers when there are potential serial killers that are literally in their own backyard and they weren't even discussing it with you, not even in passing. Let's talk makeup for a moment. What's your daily makeup routine? Are you an out of the door with a messy bun, a mascara vibe? Or are you coiffed to the max? Or maybe you're somewhere in between like me. Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. Made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, high-performance and trademark formulas, and uncompromising standards. Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. 
I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are emerging from homelessness. It's a beauty brand and a philosophy that goes beyond skin deep by empowering women. Did you know the first product they launched were false eyelashes, which was motivated by the fact that cancer patients lose their eyelashes? How amazing is that? I love their new sheer strength lip plumping peptide gloss. It gives you a visibly fuller looking, luscious lips without fillers or uncomfortable stinging sensations. It's also ultra hydrating and there are 10 shades to choose from which enhance your natural lips, six shines and four shimmers. Support and empower women and treat yourself or a loved one. Thrive Cosmetics is a luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crime analyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 20% off your first order. Yes, and I was there for months. Now, you know, that did alarm me, having been in situ in their offices, and it's literally on you know, out in your backyard. We talked about lots of cases and it may just have been that across those months, there were just many other things going on. People didn't think it was a case that needed to be discussed at a case consult. And oftentimes it's an investigator, a local investigator that brings the case back up, particularly if it's an older one. But it just struck me as as odd that I didn't hear about it there, given that I was located there for a number of months. And it, I've always said that when people say serial killers are quite rare, I've always said, but how do we know that when we've still got those who have not been caught or, you know, that are undetected that are still operating? And people always say, and I remember Israel Keyes saying, well, the best serial killers are the ones that haven't been caught yet. And it's a very obvious thing, isn't it? That we don't like to think that they're prolific, but unfortunately across my career, I have focused on serial offenders and they are much more prolific than the public would like to think. And I know we've been talking broadly about the Colonial Parkway murders. And perhaps let's take a back step and talk about which cases we're referencing specifically. Because from 1986 to 1989, there were four young couples. And the Colonial Parkway, well, I'm going to ask you both just to describe the geographic area and also just tell us a bit about the cases themselves. I think it's better coming from both of you. So whoever wants to start off. Well, I can start by talking about the Colonial Parkway because I do live here and I drive it to and from work every single day, although I should note that I do not drive it in the dark. It's been 36 years since you know horrific tragedies happened on that parkway, but I still will not drive it after dark. So the Colonial Parkway is a 23-mile stretch of roadway that's meant to look like a scenic, old-fashioned highway. It's not cobblestoned, um, but it's certainly not like straight through, um, you know, shiny, smooth blacktop. There are very few ways on and off the parkway. So once you're on it, you're committed to staying on it until you get to the next exit for it. And it's actually in a very narrow area. It actually has the distinction, I think, of being the skinniest, the, the narrowest of the national parks, because on one side you have 
the James River and the York River. And on the other side, you have a military base called Cheetah Manax, which is a Navy installation. And so the Colonial Parkway, it's really beautiful, which is why I drive it <laughs> to and from work. But it is definitely a place that in the 1980s was lightly patrolled, I think more lightly patrolled than anyone would care to admit if we were to go on the record with law enforcement or National Park Service. And in the 80s, it was sort of known as having this um, this Wild West mentality. It was a place where um, you could go to do some low-level drug deals, where there was gay cruising. It's the sort of place that you know, even people my age and a little bit older will kind of chuckle and go, oh yeah, I used to hang out on the parkway back in the day. I could tell you some stories. There is definitely a reputation that the parkway was the place where you would go if you wanted to commit some bad behavior anywhere from like, let me just do a little minor hookup for weed to other things up to and including serial murder. That's helpful to to hear, actually. And before you come in, Bill, you know, I think because I've looked at maps and I've heard Bill describe it, but knowing that there's bodies of water on one side, and you said a naval base on the other side. Was that right? Yes, Cheetah Manix, it's the naval weapons station. And um, so it has dock facilities out on the York River. It's where nuclear weapons are loaded and, and disembarked. So you have Navy ships that come in from the Atlantic. They come up the York River and weapons are loaded onto them at the naval base. And then they can turn right around and go back out. So um, there are portions of the parkway that runs immediately adjacent to the naval base. And the only thing that separates the parkway from the base is like a, a barbed wire fence. Okay, that's interesting. And the fact that you don't drive it at night, is that, I mean, A, you know the things that have gone on there. B, it talks to, for me, how dark it is. And it's still dark, is it? It is very, very dark. I'll drive there, for example, at night if my boyfriend is driving, because I I feel safer if it's two people. It is very dark. And There are not a ton of lights. I think they don't want to take away from the ambiance that you get of this beautiful sort of old-fashioned roadway. And you can see lights from the military bases, but for the most part, yes, it is very dark. I would definitely say that one of the reasons I don't drive it is because it was drilled into me as a teenager when I was first learning to drive. You do not drive in the Colonial Parkway by yourself at night. And that goes like double and triple for women. Like that was drilled into me. Sorry for doing this to you, Bill, but I should let you know that by the time Bill's sister was murdered in 1986, I was five years old. I grew up with this. And even by the time I turned 16, so 11 years later, the specter of what had happened on the parkway was still there, um, like prominent enough that my generation was told, you don't drive on the parkway at night. And the caveat was always added to that. If someone tries to pull you over, do not stop. And that was just, that was drilled into me and, and every other person that I went to school with. So the, the, the specter of it remains. Okay. Well, they're really important points for someone who's grown up in that area. And that fear, I mean, even when you're talking about it, I know you're trying to be respectful to Bill, but I think it's really important that my listeners here, you know, the fear that resides with you, particularly as you're a woman uh, or when you're a woman, that when police and law enforcement come out and say it's an isolated incident, that's not how women interpret any form of violence to women. It puts us on red alert that an area is not safe. And so why I always say that is because I want law enforcement colleagues who listen to the podcast to always think about what they put out and 
not to put out things like it's an isolated incident, which is what happened almost 200 miles away when Lolly and Julie were found murdered. It was called an isolated incident very early. And these things for women are not isolated. And of course, that's a problem if you have got a serial perpetrator who's operating too. It gives you misinformation. So do not stop when you're driving. I mean, that sounds to me like that's the Route 29 stalker legacy as well of women being told not to stop their cars. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But Bill, we'll we'll talk about the Route 29 case. For me, there are some overlaps with all the cases. And certainly one overlap is the messaging to women and how we live our lives and day to day, which men don't necessarily have to think about. But for for women, we have to think about our safety first and foremost. Did you want to come in, Bill? Yeah, well, first of all, there's a through line in the Colonial Parkway murders, which actually developed very early on, even before all the murders had taken place. And everyone's very uncomfortable with this, but it is the reality, which is these murders feel a lot like a traffic stop. And so there's always been a concern that a law enforcement officer or someone impersonating a law enforcement officer is actually the offender in these cases. Now, interestingly, there's still nothing, according to the FBI, there's still nothing in the forensics that links the four double homicides in the Colonial Parkway murders. They're circumstantially similar in that we have couples, cars, isolated rural locations, lover's lane type situations. But there's nothing scientifically that links the so-called Colonial Parkway murders. And even the name, the Colonial Parkway murders, that's a media construct. That's not something that officially these murders are referred to in that way. And interestingly, only two of the four double homicides actually occur on the Colonial Parkway. The other two are about what would you say, 30 minutes in either direction, Crystal, maybe a little bit more? Yeah, about that. If we use the Colonial Parkway as the center point, so two of the double homicides aren't even on the parkway, but they're all referred to as the Colonial Parkway murders. Well, two very interesting points, Bill. The the first we're going to come back to, the, the sense that it's somebody posing in a role, which is why women have stopped their vehicles or why you might wind your window down and talk to somebody. You know, and that does seem to be a theme that comes out even. And I remember talking to Jim about it, and I'm not sure whether we discussed it on the actual podcast, but he talked about at the time that there was an FBI agent's wife and he had told his wife never to stop. If somebody flashes you and you're on route 20, never stop. And she did report that she had someone behind her, lights flashing, trying to pull her over, and she refused to. She kept going, and she was really shaken up, and she spoke about it. Now, I don't know whether that was ever legitimately reported, but I do wonder how many situations are there of near misses, as I call them, where women didn't stop. And she did say that he then gave up and moved off, which implies that it wasn't a legitimate stop. The one thing about women, which is what I always say, is that most oftentimes women are polite and play by the rules. And therefore, 
you are much more likely to think, oh, I've done something wrong or or maybe my light's out or, oh, you know, I should stop because it's the right thing to do. And that is a huge problem if you've got someone like this targeting women, um, not even in one specific area, because the geography, I think that's interesting, Bill, that again, this sort of the moniker that's given to the case is not accurate, which actually can be very limiting and cause a big problem in terms of linkage and what people associate with a case. So it's very damaging when sometimes it's the media, they come up with a name or a title for a case and it really doesn't help. And that's something else I'd really like to see, you know, not happening going forward, that Cases are grouped and a name is given or a perpetrator is given a name, a moniker that can be very problematic to a case. Well, Kristen and I talk about rabbit holes a lot when we're talking about (laughs) Parkway murders. But I've actually said fairly recently, I actually think the name, the Colonial Parkway murders, Mm -hmm. may be the biggest rabbit hole of all because that implies, strongly implies, that there's a relationship between these four double homicides. And I know we'll get into more detail as we move forward, but I'm actually increasingly skeptical that these homicides are all related. Yeah, agreed. 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 For me, having looked at them all, we haven't had this conversation before, so listeners are hearing it organically. So I would really like to get into that because I'm very interested in how your views and thoughts may have changed over time. And obviously having a lot more knowledge now about law enforcement procedures and details of when you talk to behavioral analysts, profilers, uh, forensic scientists, experts in their field, of course, your knowledge increases and it may then change the way that you interpreted something previously. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths, and Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormills, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormills.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. But let's take a, a moment to go back and let's, if, if you don't mind, Bill, can we talk about Kathy and Becky? And can you start us off just, you grew up with Kathy. Can you just explain who she was? Because she was quite an extraordinary woman in the sense of going through Naval College and her 
athleticism and her sporting ability, all things that make me think that probably she and I would be friends if she were here. And I, I would just love to hear you talk about who Kathy was. Well, thanks. Well, Kathy was an amazing young woman. She was um, a graduate of the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. And she was part of the second class with women to graduate from Annapolis. So she's very much a pioneer. Now we come from a Navy family. My father, Joe Thomas, my older brother, Richard Thomas, and our younger sister, Kathy, were the first father, son, daughter graduates of the United States Naval Academy. It's happened since, but somebody had to be first and that was Kathy. And Kathy was one of those people who was incredibly focused and hardworking no matter what Kathy set her mind to do, once she had decided that she wanted to do something and she was very big on goal setting, she would work harder than anyone you'd ever met in your life. So her academics, her athletics, all of her accomplishments were all incredible. I'm not saying just because of her talent and ability, which was there, but it was mostly because she worked harder than anyone you'd ever met. I remember, for instance, in high school, she joined the women's track team. And that was actually fairly new back then to the point where they were putting together a team and they didn't have anyone to throw the shot, that heavy iron ball that you see people flinging into the air. No one on the team had ever thrown the shot put before. So Kathy, as usual, said, well, okay, I'll do that too. So in addition to running track and field events, she said, I'll throw the shot. So she brought home this heavy iron ball in her gym bag to my parents' house and then proceeded to practice over and over and over again. And I used to mow the lawn. That was one of my jobs. And I noticed that there were all of these dents in the front yard. Now, I didn't complain because I was supportive of what Kathy was doing. But she was out there for hours throwing this heavy iron ball back and forth across my parents' yard because she was determined that she was going to be not just the person who threw the shot on the team, but in addition to running her other events and so on, she was actually going to get good at it. And she actually did, even though she'd literally never even held the iron ball before she threw it for the first time. And she did that with everything that she possibly could. So Kathy's this amazing young woman in the second class with women at the Naval Academy. And let me tell you, they had opened up the service academies in 1976. So the first year of female graduates was 1980. 1981, Kathy's year was the second year. Now, my older brother, Richard, had tried to prepare her for just how much kind of harassment she was in for. And it was so much worse than we had anticipated. At the Naval Academy, and even in her five years in the fleet, as they call it, there were a lot of people in the United States Navy and in the higher ups, I'm talking about the Pentagon on down, and I'm not exaggerating. They were bound and determined to see these women fail. So these women were graduating from West Point, the Air Force Academy, and the Naval Academy. And there were people, and the Navy was a hotbed of this, unfortunately. It's not their finest hour, trust me. They were determined to see these women fail. And so they were 
a lot of incidents at the Naval Academy and in during Kathy's time as a, an active duty Naval officer where the harassment was just completely off the charts. I'm happy to say 40 years later, things are somewhat better. Not perfect, far from it, we know that, but things have gotten a lot better, partially because of the hard work of that first group of women who were real pioneers. So Kathy served in the United States Navy after graduating from the Naval Academy. And we think this could be significant. She was investigated by the Naval Criminal Investigative Service. They were called the NIS back then. Now they're called the NCIS. She was investigated for being a lesbian, which was true. Uh, about two years prior to her murder. And there is a strong possible tie-in between that investigation and her murder two years later. She had met and fallen in love with a female shipmate who was an enlisted person aboard the USS L.Y. Spear, which was homeported in um, Norfolk, Virginia. At that time, women were not permitted to serve on combat ships so they could only serve on support ships. The spear was a submarine tender. And her first romantic relationship with a woman was with this shipmate. Eventually, they broke up as a result of that NCIS investigation. And then Kathy kind of laid low for a two-year period. And she made the sad decision to leave the Navy at the five-year point. If you go to Annapolis, you owe them five years of service. So she got out of the Navy in June 1986, and she was murdered just a couple of months later. She had started dating a wonderful young woman named Rebecca Dowski, who was a senior at William and Mary. And that was a new relationship, about six months in duration. And it, it's profoundly sad from our perspective, the family's perspective, because we feel like Kathy had made the difficult decision to leave the Navy because she didn't feel like she was welcome there after the investigation by the NCIS and all of the harassment. But having gotten a little more comfortable with her decision, she was going to graduate school. She got a full-time job as a stockbroker. And here we go again. She ended up being quite successful as a stockbroker. Again, not a job that a lot of women held at that time. But she was beginning to make plans for the rest of her life, you know, getting a master's degree, she was still very committed to service. And interestingly, she was actually thinking she might like to work in the State Department if things would ever open up so that a gay woman could advance a career in a place like the State Department. Unfortunately, just months after getting out of the Navy, Kathy and Becky were brutally murdered while parked along the Colonial Parkway. And then, of course, their murder is followed by the murder of three straight couples approximately one couple a year for the next three years. So we have four double homicides that people now refer to as the Colonial Parkway murders. Lots of very important information there. It's important information about who Kathy was, and it really does paint a picture just of what a pioneer and leader she was at a time where women weren't seen as being worthy and at a time where she is discovering her own sexual orientation. And, you know, that's brave and courageous in and of itself to then be investigated and, you know, feeling that she can't be who she is 
but yet she had an incredible skill set that would have benefited the Navy. You know, one of my questions, I guess, is when she was experiencing all that harassment, how did she tend to deal with that? Did she express it and talk to you about it? Or did she tend to just sort of deal with it in her own way and just get on with it as just sort of part and parcel of of what was going on? It was a little of both. She was very close to my younger brother, Jack, who's a year and a half younger than I am. So there's my older brother, Richard, who was in the Navy. He's six years older than Kathy. I'm three years older than Kathy. My brother, Jack, is a year and a half younger than I am. And then Kathy and Jack are almost what they call Irish twins, where you have two babies in a year, (laughs) a year apart. They're like a year and two weeks apart. And they're both gay. Jack is gay. Kathy's a lesbian. So the two younger kids in our family are both gay. So they were very close growing up. And then they both ended up being gay. And so they had that bond as well. So Kathy in particular, I think, spoke to Jack about some of the harassment and some of the things she experienced. But at the same time, like she handled everything else, her attitude was to work harder than anyone could possibly imagine because she would take that anger and disappointment and frustration at being harassed and having things thrown at her that were unnecessary and unfair. But she'd turn that around and she'd use that energy to to work harder. So she'd she'd go to the gym more and she'd, you know, run further and further distances like Kristen. She was a runner. And you know, she just, she'd take all that. I'm clenching my fist here, you know, that just that anger and angst, and she would just put it to good use. So it was frustrating. And she was often found herself in difficult situations, but she would just turn around and just refocus harder and harder on her work. So she did share, particularly with Jack, she was very concerned She didn't want to embarrass my parents who were very supportive of all of us and very proud of her. And she didn't want to embarrass herself in front of her older brother too, because he was six years older. He was a Navy doctor and Richard was pulling for her success. But at the same time, he had his own career to be concerned about. And even something as, and I talked to Richard and my sister-in-law, Anne, about this this weekend. Kathy being gay, that that was illegal at that time. This is before don't ask, don't tell. You actually could get thrown in prison for being gay or lesbian in the service at that time. And unfortunately, the Navy was notorious for going after gay women, not so much gay men. They were obsessed with kicking lesbians out of the service. And remember what I said a moment ago, there were people way high up in the Navy that were bound and determined to embarrass the decision makers, meaning the politicians who had decided to open up the service academies to women over the resistance and opposition of many of the old boys that had run the Navy for decades. So they were willing to use whatever means necessary. A few years ago, uh, the FBI asked me to go back and interview about 10 to 15 of Kathy's classmates, uh, which I did. And actually it was a very enjoyable experience reconnecting or connecting with these women, all of whom were amazing and very accomplished. 
but something that was very striking of the say 12 to 15 women that I spoke to a clear majority of them gay or straight had been investigated by the NCIS and accused of being lesbian. Even if some of them weren't lesbian, as a matter of fact, some of them as far back as when they were plebes, which is freshmen at the Naval Academy were accused of being lesbian at age 17 and I remember one of them said to me, Bill, they would come in and interrogate us and make accusations. They would use sexually explicit terminology. Jesus. We literally didn't even know what they were talking about. We were virgins from small towns all over America. And these guys are coming in. These are cops, basically, and plainclothes cops accusing us of sexual transgressions. A lot of us were still virgins. We didn't have even a clue what it was they were talking about. But this is how they were using the official mechanisms of the United States Navy against these women. Absolutely horrific. I mean, I've got headphones on, but I've literally got steam coming out my ears just hearing that. It is. And, you know, I, I thank you for, for bringing that up because I think it is important people understand the context, you know, the nuanced detail and what Kathy was dealing with at the time and her peers. That was the view of women. They wanted them to fail. And clearly, Kathy felt she wasn't welcome to continue having been investigated. And let me tell you, it's pretty scary when you're at the wrong end of things and you know that people are out to get you and that they hold the cards because ultimately they decide what happens next and you feel very powerless. And particularly if you play by the rules and you've got others who are not playing by the rules and investigating you and just making stuff up, that is a very frightening place to be when is all you're doing is, as you see it, doing your job and you just want to be given a fair shake, right? You just want to be treated equally. And, you know, yes, I can talk from my own experiences at New Scotland Yard, because when I was there, women were not treated well. Um, and you probably had a, a large percentage who wanted you to fail. And they were helping that process to happen. And that's not that long ago. So I, I can't even imagine what it was like for Kathy. But hearing from her peers and that that was fairly standard that you were being investigated. Well, for Kathy being a lesbian and having experienced her relationship and in close quarters as well, if they're on a submarine, but being investigated, you know, maybe the, the threat that she felt was a very clear and present one, actually, for then her to leave. But rather than be dismayed, she goes on to be a stockbroker and she has her whole life ahead of her. And she meets Becky. She has the next relationship. And they seem to, you know, get on very well. And I know you hadn't met Becky at that point. She was going to come to yours for Thanksgiving, wasn't she? Was that, that was the plan, as I recall, when, when we first spoke. Right. We were so excited about meeting her. We'd heard so much about her. They'd begun to see each other in the spring of 1986. And they ended up, they were both killed. October 9th or October 10th, 1986. But just a few weeks later, we would have likely met Becky because the tentative plan was that Kathy and Becky were going to come up to my parents' house up in Lowell, Massachusetts, and we were going to meet this wonderful Becky at Thanksgiving. And sadly, that never happened. So here it is all these years later. Now I've met Becky's family, talked to 
any number of people from the Downsky family. I feel like I know her, but I feel like mm-hmm. we, I missed out on meeting this amazing young woman that, again, just like Kathy, was an incredibly dynamic, hardworking, accomplished student who was going to do lots of great things. When I look around now and I look at all these amazing women that we know who are running for president, running for vice president, being elected to the Senate and the House, CEOs of companies, investigators, journalists, podcasters, just doing all these amazing things. And I see women accomplishing things at the highest possible level. That would have been my sister. She would now be in her early 60s. And the thing that bothers me the most about this whole thing, these eight young people that we lost is we, the big we, not just Bill or my family, the Thomases, we all lost something when we lost these eight amazing young people. And when I look at all those amazing women around me and I am thrilled that they are achieving these incredible goals, that would have been Kathy Thomas. I have no doubt about that, Bill. From everything you describe, from the shot put, creating multiple divots in the lawn <laughs> to, you know, setting her mind to things and being able to use that energy for good. I have no doubt that she would have gone on to do incredible things. I sort of laugh about it, but I also feel very angry. Um, you know, I've spent 27 years working cases of predominantly male violence towards women. And often it's just swept under the carpet. And what we don't talk about are all the things that lead up to these events and women's experiences of the way that we're treated in the world when we just want to be treated with equality, with dignity, with respect. And we have to do everything in spite of, despite this adversity. And what would the world look like if you know, everything was, the energy was moving for us and people were, were moving with us and trying to help us rather than against. And and I mean that even in terms of trying to solve the cases, it really shouldn't be this difficult. And is all you're asking for is the cases to be reviewed thoroughly and for the evidence, if it exists, to be examined by those who can competently, capably and safely examine the evidence that is present and has been for 36 years. So why does it become so difficult? You know, as you say, eight young people were brutally murdered, whether we believe it's one person or multiple people, whoever they are are still out there. Okay, I'm jumping in here to wrap part one of our fascinating discussion. You know, what stands out to me is how women have to survive and thrive and work so much harder when there are others around them doing their damnedest to make us fail. It really makes me mad. Also, Kathy and Becky were amazing pioneering leaders and women, just like Lolly and Julie. The point that Bill makes really resonates with me. Someone brutally murdered them, and that someone is still out there. The victims deserve justice, and their families are still waiting for answers. How can that be right? Okay, more to come next week as we get into the graphic crime scene details that reveal important decisions that the perpetrator took at the scene. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts.
Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude. 